Good morning, Foothill Church. Today's scripture is found in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4-10. through 10. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is God's word. All right, well, thank you, uh, Amy Berry, one of our covenant partners. Grateful for you. And um, uh, uh, open up, if you haven't already, to 1 Peter chapter 2. Now, I don't know if you've seen the movie Miracle, right? This is one of those feel-good sports movies, inspirational. Maybe it's a time like this that you might want to watch a movie like that. Uh, it's a story of the 1980 Olympic hockey team that went to Lake Placid and uh, don't, you know, it's, I think it's too late. It's been out too long for me to do a, a, do a spoiler for you. But um, uh, at the very end, they actually beat the Russian hockey team, right? The, 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 the hockey team for the USSR. But, but the story really revolves around Herb Brooks, who was a real person, and he coached uh, and, and played in, in, uh, in, in uh, the hockey leagues. And he, he was brought in to coach this, this kind of group of undisciplined college hockey players, and, uh, and so the, the first part of the film, of course, it's this sort of, you know, you, you've seen the trope before where, man, I want to try to corral these, these guys and get them to work as one, but they don't seem to be doing it. And, and right at the very beginning, kind of that first third of the movie, this question starts to get thrown out at various times where, where Herb Brooks will, during practice, say to the team, who do you play for? Right, somebody will answer, oh, I'm so-and-so, and I play for this, this college team, okay? And they keep practicing and ask it again. At one point, they, they finally go play an exhibition game against the Norwegian national team, and I forget if they tie or they, they, they lose, but in any event, Herb Brooks is not happy with their performance. It was very lackluster. They weren't really operating as a team, and so before they even go home from that game, he tells them to stop there on the ice in their uniforms, and he begins to run lines back and forth and back and forth and back and forth, and it's this very long scene, and these guys are getting more and more tired, and you know, they're, they're, they're starting to you know, gasp and cough and spit up and all this stuff on the ice ice as they, as Herb Brooks just keeps blowing the whistle, run him again, blowing the whistle, run him again. Until at a point of utter exhaustion, one guy finally lifts his voice in the midst of his exhaustion and says, Mike Aruzzioni. And he says, Mike, who do you play for? It's this awesome moment, right, in the film when he says, 
the United States of America. Finally, it wasn't Boston University or University of Minnesota. They finally got it. He said, all right, guys, you can go home, right? They, they finally understood what he was trying to tell them. At one point he says to them, guys, the name on the front of the jersey is more important than the name on the back. This is your new identity. Put away your old rivalries, step into this new thing and become what I know that you are. That is a really apt description for what Peter is trying to do in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. He's saying, here's who you are. Embrace it. Put on the jersey. Get rid of the old rivalries. And now step into this thing and become who you are. Who are you? Like if you ask the question, if I were to ask you that question, you to me, like as Westerners, most of us uh, here listening to this, we would answer with I statements, wouldn't we? We, we would, it would be all about me. I, and I'd give you my name. I, and I'd give you my occupation. I, and I'd give you my marital status or lack thereof. I, and I'd tell you, you know, maybe my job, all those things. It's here's, here's what I do. Here's, here's some roles that I play. I live in this city. If you go to Eastern cultures or you go to places like, like Ghana where uh, Ebenezer Puplampu, one of our elders, is from, you're going to hear more we statements, right? He's going to talk about his tribe or here's the, the geographic region I'm from. Or I'm from. Here's, here's the nationality that I belong to. If Peter came to us, he, he would not say to us, who are you? That wouldn't be his question. It would be more, whose are you? Because Peter recognizes what the Bible is teaching, what Peter, Paul, James, Jesus, what the Bible teaches us is that what now identifies the Christian is our faith in Jesus. That all these various things that separate us, right, are now sort of subsumed. They all come together in Jesus Christ and our faith in him. So we come together, right? And, and, and we look at ourselves as a congregation or as the church of Jesus Christ and it's no longer I'm a Republican or I'm a Democrat. Well, you might be, but that's not the most important thing. Or I'm from America or I'm from Ghana. That's not the most important thing. Or I'm of this socioeconomic uh, status. I live in this zip code. Okay, fine, but that's not the most important thing. There's something far more important and he's saying, whose are you? Who, who do you belong to? That's the biggest question we can ask. Now, remember what Peter wants to do here. He writes this letter, because he, and he's going to tell them all this, because he wants to encourage them. He wants them to endure until the end. He wants them to be able to face persecution and hardship and suffering and if you were writing it today and COVID-19 and stay-at-home orders and economic collapse, if that, that's what happens, all of these things. So that maybe we need the same encouragement that they needed. But how? How do we endure? See, have you ever thought about this? What, what do we do? At one point in the movie, I don't know if Herb Brooks said it, but Kurt Russell said it. He said, guys, you can't win these games on talent alone. You don't have enough talent to win on talent alone. 
We could extrapolate that and say, Christian, you don't have in yourself what it takes to endure until the end. Endurance is not an individual sport. It is a community thing. It's a team sport. We come together. We have to see ourselves in this collective. We have to see ourselves in this corporate body that we've now become a part of. That's what's most important to us. See, remember, Peter, Peter wants to command us. He wants to show us so that we can kind of embrace, we can put on this new jersey, right? We can put on and say, this is our new identity. Now live in it. And, and, and so, so remember, every command, every time you see the word you, think of y'all. Every time you see a command that you're supposed to do, think of this is not just to me individually. Of course, I have to carry it out. This is to us. Every time there's a description of you, it's a description of us. So we could ask the question differently. It's not so much who are you, but who are we? That's what he's saying to us. Who are we? And so let me, I'm going to give you two things, and there will be uh, a few things underneath those, okay? The first thing I want you to see is Peter's going to say, who are we? Who are you? He's saying, We're, you're a living stone, or you're living stones, uh, to, be, to be precise, right? So, so look at it. Look at verse 4, and let's kind of just do this one verse at a time. He says, as you come to him, Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Now, we haven't finished the sentence there. There's a comma, right? But just hold on for a second. What's he saying? This is helpful. He, he, wants, he wants them to know, look, Christ knows you beleaguered people, you who are suffering, you who are going through persecution, you who perhaps have been rejected now by your families because of your new faith. Maybe you've, you've been kicked out of occupations because you believe in Jesus because you take a stand on truth and say the same thing happened to Jesus they concluded Jesus was irrelevant they rejected him he suffered he was marginalized but in God's eyes what does it tell us he was chosen and precious God's conclusion is totally different. Okay, so he says, right, in light of that, look at, look at verse 5. He says, you yourselves, as you come to him, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. Right, so here's Christ. Christ is the living stone. So now we, therefore, become just like him. We're becoming like the one we worship. Christ is the living stone, so we become living stones, plural. Now, now look, at, look at what he says. He says. He says, as we come, okay, then the finishing of the sentence is, you yourselves like living stones are being built up, right? Into what? Into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So now what's happening? It's as we come, as we come together, what do we do? We're coming to Christ. And, and let me just say this. One of the implications of this is that when we come to Christ, we, of necessity, come into a new community. Like there, there's just, listen, there is no such thing as a Christian who comes to Christ and then stays separate from the community. That just doesn't happen in the Christian community. What happens is we're now grafted in. We come in, right? See, Christianity is always 
personal, but it's never private. Right? It is always something bigger than just me. I don't, I don't escape. I, I cannot escape the corporateness of what Peter is saying there. God is building something. Okay, we might say this. God, God wants to build something out of stones. Nobody just uses one stone. Rather, they take in all of these stones and he takes in, you know, dozens, hundreds, thousands of stones. That's why you're called living stones. And he puts them together. He fits us together. He forms us like a master mason and, and, and as we keep coming back to him. Now, now, the verb tense here in verse four is, is interesting because it's this idea of just this continuous action. So, so Wayne Grudem Uh, rephrases it uh, like this. He says, as you continually come to Christ in initial faith then in worship and prayer, you are yourselves being built into a spiritual house. What I want you to see there is this, is this, it's not something that just happens one time. We keep coming. And what does Jesus do as we keep coming? He keeps chiseling and pushing, right? This is the process of sanctification. And what's happening as Christ sanctifies you and he sanctifies me as he changes us? He's, he's chiseling away parts and saying, man, this is how I'm going to fit you together. And you're going to grow, therefore, into a spiritual house where that offers worship and sacrifices, so, so that, listen, the way we glorify God ultimately is not that we have our individual spiritual disciplines and practices. That's great. It's that we see ourselves as part of a larger whole. We see the, the sum of the parts as greater than the parts themselves, Right? All this together, being fitted together into this, right? So God, the master mason, takes these lifeless rocks, right? And does what only God can do, makes a stone live, (laughs) right? I mean, this is this mixed metaphor, strange, that he's saying it's a living stone. He causes them to come together and he incorporates them into a dwelling, bursting with life, bursting with worship, bursting with sacrifice, bursting with service, that's what comes out of this, right? So, so we need this. We need this. In a, in a me-centered culture, we have to think like this, right? See, see, look at what Peter's saying here. We're just living stones in a spiritual house. In other words, like, like here's God is the, is, the, is the one who's decided all this. Christ is the architect. He's the one fitting us, the master mason, putting it all together, all for worship to God, worship of Christ. You and I are building materials. We're not the main idea. And we need to remember this. In our Christian faith, right, it's not about you. It's not about, man, I want to, I'll do things or I won't do things just for what they benefit me. Sometimes we do things. Sometimes we enroll in classes. Sometimes we get in groups. We come to church. We gather as a people when that's allowed. We come together even virtually online. Not because it's something necessarily that in that moment you go, I crave this. Because you recognize God's doing something. I'm part of a building. I'm a vital part of what God is doing in all this. See, see, look, um, we don't live the Christian life on our own. It is the we that brings the greatest glory to God. That's what Peter's saying here. 
we're just a pile of rocks without Christ. He's fitting us together. Okay, now, sometimes we'll say things, maybe you said it this morning, let's go to church, right? Even if that meant flipping on a TV. See, what you got to understand, and one of the things that we're supposed to be seeing here is that we don't go to church the way we go to the grocery store or go to the gas station or a doctor. We are the church. We belong to the church in the way that, that bricks belong to a building. The building is made up of all these constituents, the way a, the parts of a body belong to each other, the way brothers and sisters belong to a family. This is what we are. That's what Peter wants to see, that, that we are living stones. Now, watch what he does here in verses 6 through 8. Okay, let's read. He says, for, so what he's going to do here is say, let me prove to you from Scripture that what I just said is true. For it stands in Scripture. And then he goes and finds a bunch of, we might just say, he opened his concordance and found a bunch of stone passages, right? So look what he does. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honors for you who believe, but for those who do not believe the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Now let's kind of think through this for a moment. Okay, Peter says, let me prove to you that Christ is the stone and what he's doing here but he's also saying, here's what's happened. This cornerstone that is Christ, that's verse 6, verse 7, has been rejected by people. So there's a very clear choice here. You can receive Jesus as the cornerstone or you can reject him. He says, if you receive him, there's blessing. If you reject him, then, then the opposite. You will not, you will be put to shame. There, there will be. When a day of judgment comes, you will stand there, you know, just, just, just face fallen thinking, what have I done, Right? Now, why does that happen? Why do some accept? Why do some reject? Well, we'll talk about this in a moment, but I want you to see, first of all, he talks about this choice, and he says, because Jesus is the cornerstone, and the builders have rejected the cornerstone. Let me, let me tell you what's happening here. In, in, uh, if you were to go to Israel today, uh, we tend to think of, by the way, Jesus as a carpenter, so we think wood. He was this great woodworker. Uh, likely what that means is he was a stone mason. Uh, because you don't find a whole lot of wood in Israel. There's a whole lot of stone, though. So you'll go to cities, and they'll show you. They make stone. They make stone homes and houses. And one of the things that happens is they would take, and they would find and get a, a, a square, we might say, cornerstone, and that's how they would start building the house. They wouldn't just start laying bricks. They would find something that gave them the right angle, gave them the true uh, degrees, right? Showed them exactly. If you'll line things up with this, this cornerstone, then the house will stand. Then it will be strong. Then it will be true and square, we might say. So, so what happens when people reject Jesus? Like, I don't, I don't, I don't want that. I don't, I don't want to be fitted to that cornerstone. I want that cornerstone to be fitted to me. What I want is I want a Jesus of my own making. And this is very popular. This is very Oprah Winfrey, right? I don't want to worship the Jesus or the God of the Bible. This is the spirit of the age. I want to take and I want to form that God into my image. So it's interesting. People will say things like, I want to think of Jesus as, I want to think of God as, I don't want the cornerstone the Bible gives me that Jesus revealed himself to me. I, I want to shape that cornerstone stone to fit my life. 
And here's the problem. Very often that cornerstone, that person, that Jesus, that God ends up looking a whole lot like you. He'll never judge you. He'll never push back against you. He'll never tell you, don't, don't do that. He'll affirm everything you do. That sounds awesome. The problem with a God like that, the problem with a cornerstone like that, is that they can't change you. They can't do anything for you. They're just a limp, lifeless, there's no adjustment that has to be made. And he's saying if you reject him, then look it, then you're going to be put to shame. Okay, so, so look what he says. What happens is then, then people stumble over it. Look, he says in verse 8, it's a stone of stumbling. This cornerstone's been rejected. Now because of that, becomes a stone of stumbling, becomes a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. So they stumble over it. They stumble. They're offended by Christ. They're offended at his exclusive demands. It would say, I'm the way, the truth, and life. I'm the cornerstone. Build your life off of me. Me, or, or saying things like Jesus Christ has to die for your sins. People think, I'm not that bad. I'm not so bad that Jesus had to die for me. A man had to be horribly crucified. That's offensive. So Paul's going to say in 1 Corinthians what? He's going to say the cross is to, to Gentiles. He's going to say, literally, if we were to translate that word literally in the Greek, it's moranos. Sounds like something, right? It's moronic. It's stupid. It's foolish. To the, to the Jews, it's a stumbling block. But to those of us who believe, it's the power of God, right? It's a stumbling. It's an offense to people that we would be told to conform to something outside of us. Okay, so, so now, but look at how he ends verse eight, because I want to talk about this just for a moment. In verse eight, he ends and says, they stumble because they disobey the word. So they're, they're responsible then in the same breath as they were destined to do. Now that troubles some people. See, the Bible's gonna say this. Those who permanently reject Jesus will be permanently rejected. Um, and yet, it's going to say, it's your decision. <laughs> and again, with no tongue in cheek, no guile, is going to say, it's your decision. And at the same time, the sovereign hand of God is behind it. How do those things get married? We don't know. That's a mystery. Just know the Bible teaches it. That these two things come together. See, Scripture's going to lead us there. And people, here's what people do. They go, wait a second. That is unjust. I, 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 I don't like thinking like that. How can God extend mercy to some but not to others? How can he do that? Here's a principle you need to understand. God never gives to anyone less than they deserve. But he does give some more than they deserve. Now, that's not quite true. It's mostly, let me, let me explain myself. There was one time God gave someone less than they deserved. We have this, we have this you know, you'll hear this very popular, how can 
good things happen to, or how can bad things happen to good people? You know, a biblical answer to that question is, that's never happened except once. There's only one good one that ever lived and something bad happened to him. But the Bible says about everybody else except Jesus that there is not one righteous, no, not even one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. Not one righteous, good, innocent person. So God never gives to people less than they deserve, but he does give more. So our problem is we have a faulty definition of innocence and we have a faulty definition of justice. And if we don't get our definitions right, everything falls apart. And I mean biblical definitions. So there's nobody innocent. Now we know that. So we can't say, God, you know, bad thing happened to a good person. No, it never happened except to Jesus so that good things could happen to us. But we also have a faulty definition of justice. Like let's, let's suppose I'm a math teacher. I give you everybody a test and everybody flunks. It's a terrible test, hard, very difficult. I have a few choices, don't I? I can flunk everybody. If I flunk everybody, have I been unjust? No, I'm giving you what you deserve, right? You, you, you earned that grade. If I pass everybody, what have I done? Um, that's my prerogative. I can do that if I want. Um, and you'd say, wow, that's incredibly merciful. Now, now what, if, what if I only pass some and I leave other people with a flunking grade? Okay, here's the deal. You, you, you may say I don't like that, but the term for doing that is not injustice. The term for that is mercy. You see this? I'm, I'm just simply deciding that what I want to do is be merciful to some, right? This is why I said, because what would happen? Some, some got exactly what they deserved. They didn't get any less than they deserved, and some just got more. And the term for that is not injustice. The term for that is mercy. Listen, this is what Paul's getting after in Romans chapter 9, uh, verses 14 to 18. I mean, listen, listen to what Paul says. What shall we say then? Is there injustice in God's part, right? What does he say? By no means. Nobody can ever call him unjust. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I've raised you up that I might show my power in you that, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. You see what's happening? We come to God, not innocent. We come to God deserving death. We come to God standing before him sinners and what happens? We, all we can say is nobody is righteous. No, not one. So what happens if God says, I wanna let you, this one, I've got two people standing before me. This one, I'm gonna let go his own way. This one, I'm gonna pursue and bring to myself. You may not like that, but, but it's merciful to one. It's not unjust to the other. We have to get our definitions right. God is a God of mercy. See, see, and listen, to ask, 
to ask God, be just. We demand equal justice under the law is to demand condemnation. You understand this? Our only hope in life or death is the mercy of God, that he will be merciful to us as sinners. Now look at, here's the thing. Okay, so, so that, 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 that's interesting that Peter does that, but hear me. Peter is not trying to stir up controversy. We've said this before. This doctrine, as difficult as it is for us to wrap our heads around, was never meant to cause controversy. It was meant to bring comfort. In other words, what Peter is doing here is saying, look, the rejection of God, the ultimate rejection of God in Christ, I want you to know, beleaguered Christians, I want you to know you who are going through trials, I want you to know those who have been rejected by the culture and the society, this is all part of God's sovereign plan. He knows exactly what he's doing. And what's he going to do? He's going to say, he's going to say, look, you, you, you come to him, and if you, if you put your faith in him, God is going to get all the credit. If you, if you deny him, this is the way the Bible talks, you get all the blame. See, some people say, I don't like this because it sounds like God sends some people to hell. God sends no one to hell. I, I don't, logically, how, how does this work? I don't know. I'm just telling you what the Bible teaches. If you believe in God, he gets all the credit. If you don't, he will give you all the blame. That's how the Bible speaks. And this is meant to be something that comforts us. Here's the thing. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. If you have not yet called upon the name of the Lord, you can right now, today. And you can become a follower. You can be in God's family. Okay? We are living stones saying some are going to be grafted in. Some will be rejected. They will reject God. Those who are part of this house, God's building something glorious. Those who are not will be cast aside. That's the first thing. Number two, who are you? Who are we? We're, we are God's possession. So look at verse 9 with me. He says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Man, this is an amazing passage. All these, by the way, are titles. You see those? You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for, own, uh, for God's own possession. These are all titles you would have found for Israel back in the Old Testament in Exodus chapter 19 and Isaiah 43. You can go back and check these out. By the way, this book is filled with Old Testament language, even to people who are pagan non-Jews. Peter is peppering it like this. He's saying, look, all these things that were true of Israel in the Old Testament are now yours. And you may be persecuted and you may be rejected, but hear me, God has taken you in. You are God's own possession. And, and, and look, notice, I want you to see this. This is super important. All of these terms are collective terms, aren't they? You are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are a people, right? It doesn't say you are a white guy and you are a royal priest on your own and you're a, 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 a holy, uh, you know, 
person in your house and a person for his own possession. They're not individual. These are, these are a congregational. These are corporate. Look, listen to what he's saying. You're a chosen race. Like God is saying all the racial differences and inequality and the terrible things that have happened in the news should be abolished because of what's happened in Jesus Christ. We've been formed into a new race. We are a royal priesthood. Do you hear what this says? This, this means that, that there's these no stratosphere. There's no like, you know, Pastor Chris and the pastors of Foothill Church and other pastors have this special access to God. You, because of Jesus Christ, Hebrews chapter 4, now can come boldly like a priest before the throne of grace to come to Jesus in your time of need because the great high priest has passed through and he's interceding for you. You have that access. You're a holy nation. Like the, a, a people that God has said, man, you're my precious possession. Now why? Look at the last part of verse nine. He says that, there it is, there's the purpose that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So the purpose for all this is that we would, we would be so different, right? There, people would look in and say, man, that's a different group of people and we would be so different, that, 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 uh, appreciably different, that we would have the opportunity to proclaim, why are you the way you are? Who are you? What is it about you? He says the reason that we are different, the reason that we are this different kind of people is that together we proclaim something. What? The excellencies of God, the one who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And now watch the contrast, darkness to light. Verse 10, he says, once you were not a people, now you are a people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Darkness, light, alone, but now in God's family, awaiting judgments, but now receiving mercy. This is us. This is the people of God. This is you, Christian. This is me. This is a description of us. What he's saying is, put the jersey on, right? This is who you are. Now walk and be who you are. See, see, by the way, let me just make a note of something. Peter uses all this Old Testament imagery to illiterate um, pagans who didn't have access to their own Bible. They had to go and listen and hear it taught to them and read to them, preached to them. Like, what excuse do we have? We are swimming. We are swimming in Bibles. We are swimming in websites. We are flooded with podcasts. We have, we have classes you can be in. We have every, every, all of these things that in our day and time, even while we're separated, we can be growing massively in our relationship with Jesus Christ to see that this is exactly who we are. By the way, maybe thinking back on last week when he tells us we had a long for pure spiritual milk, maybe this is one of the reasons we don't. When you go to a refrigerator and the only thing that's in there stacked top to bottom is milk, you look and say, eh, it's kind of gotten boring to me. I want something else. Here's people that are saying, man, we're starving for this. And they long for it. That should be us. So who are we? 
Who are we? We are living stones. We are God's precious possession. We need to remember that, Foothill. We need to remember who we are and act out of it. And listen, maybe, maybe this has been a time when you feel like the things that you said, you know, who, who am I? I am this name and I have this occupation and I have this net worth and I have this geography and this zip code. All those identifiers are starting to slip away. All those things are starting to feel like they don't matter anymore. Some of you would say, man, I've been watching the stock market. My net worth has, you know, it's dropped in half or a quarter or whatever it is. (laughs) The people of God never have to say that. Not one Dot, not one iota of your net worth has dropped. Why? Because our identity isn't found in any of those things. Where's our identity found? It's found in Jesus. Jesus, the one who's loved, valued, treasured. He's God's possession. And now by faith we're united to him. And so through that, now we become loved and valued. And God says, I'm going to take you to myself. I'm going to possess you for myself. I'm going to change you because you now, because of Jesus, are my treasured possession. You see this? We are living stones. We are God's own possession. This is who we are. Peter says, we need to say, let's live like it. Bow with me and let's pray. Father, we love you. And God, we thank you uh, that over and over throughout Scripture, you remind us that we are who you say that we are. And I pray, God, that we would we'd embrace that, that we would remind ourselves, God, this may be the fundamental issue with most of us that call upon the name of the Lord, that call Jesus our Lord and Savior is that we find ourselves, I know I do so often, I find my identity in things lesser than Jesus, lesser than my faith, lesser than the eternal security, lesser than what's laid up for me in heaven. And Father, so now reorient our hearts that remind us of who we are in Jesus. And Father, I pray for those who would say, I'm not there. I'm not in Christ because I've never put my faith, my hope in him that today might be the day where, Lord, they would realize that there is a cornerstone that orders all the rest of life and they would put their faith, their belief in Him. They would trust that angle. They would trust that, that corner piece and all of life would be built out of that, we pray. That they would put their faith, their hope, their trust in Jesus Christ. Let that happen today, we pray. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.